the Good Life series, a series through the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at Jesus' words, Jesus' ethic, Jesus' description of the kingdom of God. The biggest section of Jesus' words put together in all of the New Testament. We're diving in, and we're right in the middle of it. Actually, we're not right in the middle of it. We just started. (laughs) There's so much more to come. But we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. I'll give you a second to turn there, and I'll just start reading. Ready? You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for the power and the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit to be here, manifesting the fragrance of Christ in all things, in all behaviors, in all actions, in all responses, and certainly in all words. We pray that as a result of this text, which we believe is divinely inspired by you and useful for our lives, that we will leave this building more like the Jesus Christ we so admire. We're able to do this because we know that you came, you died for our sins, you were buried and you were resurrected on the third day, and we know that you will come back for your pure and spotless bride. It is all your work and all your power, and it will be all for your glory. Pray that we as your church would posture ourselves in a place of joy to receive from our King, our Lord, our Savior, and our Messiah. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was 12 years old, I earned the nickname the Muffin Man. That's right. After a some deep thought, I began to, went to the kitchen, took my mom's recipe for a, a couple batches of muffins and started making them, bringing them to church. And people started buying them from me, buying my muffins. And that light went off in my head as a 12-year-old that I could make money off of this. And this was like kind of technically my first job, so I started to make more. Started taking them not just to my church, but to other churches, and then my empire began to expand as I began to move out into the secular realm, taking them to breakfast uh, nooks and to uh, restaurants and such. And all of a sudden, I had built this formidable empire of business savvy, just selling muffins for seven, eighty, uh, a dozen. And I remember 
of purchasing my own transportation with my first check. It was a 10-speed uh, bicycle. And I began to go on my route. And I was very proud of myself, 12 years old, taking over the world. Um, I don't know at what point it was, but at some point, my powerful business began to dwindle, dissipate. I don't know if it was because I got lazy or I got powerful or I got uh, full of myself or I just started to drop the ball. But at some point, I lost the passion in it. And I remember little things beginning to change in me. I remember at one point, I stopped personally bringing uh, my baked goods to the restaurant and to the church. I just asked my mom to do it. And so that relational level was gone. I remember soon after that, I stopped uh, making them fresh from scratch. I actually asked, uh, I actually started purchasing those pre-made mixes, you know, with the uh, freeze-dried blueberries in the mix, to make uh, the same batches. And at some point, I just completely dropped the ball and asked my mom to even make them. And so I had completely outsourced everything to my mom. I was just raking in the dough, just raking in the money, just sitting on the couch doing nothing. And uh, I don't know if that was the reason, but I imagine that it was. The quality control went down, and people started buying um, the, the, the muffins that I had been cooking. Uh, I had a problem. It was a little problem. It was a 12-year-old problem, but... I wanted to cut corners and get by on the bare minimum. I wanted all the benefit without doing any of the work. The text that we're looking at today, and every text from this point on into the 48th verse, so the rest of chapter 5, has a similar flavor to it. These people are admiring the law of God because it tells them how they're supposed to live. And Jesus is going to come in on the scene and expose a problem that all people have. What's the least amount that I can do to get by with righteousness? This tendency that we have, people have, to view the law of God and to say, what can I, what's the bare minimum that I can get away with? and still make it into the kingdom of God. And so you're gonna see in the next few sermons in Jesus' examples, him pitting one another, uh, one against the other, what you might call the letter of the law, right? The bare minimum against the spirit of the law, what the law is really trying to get to. And he's pitting them together and he's showing the difference. And the letter of the law comes up right there in verse 21, right? You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus referring back to Exodus where we're told through the law of God given to Moses, thou shalt not murder. And he's saying, yes, that's the least that you could do. Don't murder. But what he's going to be just inspecting, prodding, diagnosing, pushing, scratching at our Lord Jesus is the sense that the law has not been satisfied. God's holiness and his goodness and his desire for those things to be a part of our life, a part of the the church of God, a part of the people of God. The law has not been satisfied just because no blood has been spilled. 
It's not enough, in other words, for me to wake up in the morning and say, God, I have not murdered anybody today. And it's only 9 a.m. That's the bare minimum. And that's not the actual heart of God's law. It goes much deeper. It provokes us to ask further questions of laws like thou shalt not murder, such as can actions be divorced from character? Can you do something in this life without it being intricately attached to who you are? Can a person murder without also having problems with their character? And they commit adultery without something deep inside being disconnected. These are the questions that are going on in the background. And Jesus, the surgeon of the heart that he is, steps in with his words and exposes the ingenuity of the human heart to devise clever ways to get around simple instructions like thou shalt not murder. And our ability to do that, the ability of the human heart to get around rules is astounding, isn't it? For example, there's another one Jesus would would treat later on in the gospel about the Sabbath. The Pharisees had a problem with Jesus doing certain things on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, especially uh, the main occurrences in Exodus and Deuteronomy where it tells us to practice them, are always attached to this, this, this reason in Exodus Uh, It's because God himself rested, and so rest is a good thing. In Deuteronomy, it's tied to the fact that Israel were slaves, and so God says to the Israelites, I want you to honor the Sabbath day and to rest and not work for this reason. And he attaches it to their freedom and to their redemption, and so the Sabbath has always been this good thing for God's people, this refreshment, this day of rest to enjoy God. And yet over time, here's how the the heart can so work itself and manipulate what God is saying. Over time, uh, Hebrew people in studying this would say things of this nature. I'm just going to paraphrase this to uh, point out an example. They would say, okay, but what is work? I shall honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, not working on that seventh day, but what is work? And they would begin to ask questions over the centuries. They would ask questions perhaps like this. Well, on Saturday, uh, what if you're thirsty? Can you go and get some water? Well, yes, yes, you can get some water. That's not work. Well, I have to go out to the well to get water. Can I retrieve water from the well? Yeah, well, yeah, 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 that's, that's not considered work either. That's acceptable. Unless... There is no rope attached to the bucket by which you retrieve the water. And then you can't do that because that would require you tying a knot, and a knot is work. So no tying knots on the Sabbath. And over the centuries, what God made, uh, the, the statements that God made would accumulate into these volumes of other additional laws to try to explain God's law. All of a sudden, it's not just you know, rest on Saturday to be in the presence of God. It's now don't tie knots and don't do this and don't do that and don't build this and don't go there and don't do this. And all of a sudden, the people of God missed God's heart in the law. And so that's why Jesus would come along and say, hey, how many of you, you would say to the Pharisees, how many of you would grab a goat that fell into a a ditch that had, uh, you know, hurt its leg or something of that nature on the Sabbath day? If you would do that, why can't I heal this guy that God loves so much more? And he would state, you remember, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
And so he would do things like that. And that's the, that's the direction the human heart wants to go. It wants to, uh, in an ingenious and clever, but albeit evil way, devise, devise ways to get around what God is saying. And so Jesus would come in, in this text, with the spirit of the law. He would say in verse 22, after saying, hey, you, you know, it was said of old, you shall not murder, and those who murder will be liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and he goes on. Jesus is now showing, this is, this is crazy, he's showing the capacity of evil in the human heart that can occur without murder ever taking place. He's saying you don't have to get to that place to fall short of God's glory. Here's the spectrum of what your heart is capable of doing against God and your fellow man. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's not just murder that's, uh, that has no place in the kingdom of God, it's anger. You may say, well, wasn't Jesus angry? Didn't Jesus get angry? John chapter two, verse 13 through 22 Mark chapter three, verse five, Matthew 23, verse 17, Jesus got angry. But here's the difference. Jesus got angry at sin. Jesus got angry at human suffering. Jesus got angry at injustice. Jesus got angry at things that angered the Father's heart in righteousness. It was righteous anger. He was never personally affronted, right? It was never out of bitterness or hate or uh, personal offense. In fact, in 1 Peter 2.23, the apostle would say of his Lord, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Rather than righteous anger, what Jesus is speaking about in this text is a word often used for intense anger. He's using a word that refers to intense anger. We could call it rage. This is not righteous anger. It's not anger for right reasons. It's an intense rage or an, inten uh, an intense anger inside of you. Now, when that inside of you is pushed out in the context of people, you have what he says later. He's carrying on this example. He says, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now, Matthew is speaking on behalf of Jesus, right? He's, he's recalling the words of Jesus, and Matthew's doing it in Greek, right? He was a Greek speaker. When Jesus would have spoken Aramaic, and the word that Jesus would have used to speak about insulting your brother was a term called raka, raka. It was a term of abuse, of vilification, pushing away. It was a, a word that uh, was current in Jesus' day to express contempt for someone else. You can think of it as contempt. And it was to mark out that person as contemptible. It was your anger out, uh, inside coming outside to mark someone else off as excluded in some way. In fact, uh, some people think that this term, this Aramaic term, originated from the sound one makes to collect spit in the back of your throat. <laughs> And so even the etymology of the word is just this vivid, vivid illustration of this deep-seated anger in the heart of a person. Now, here's the thing about it. 
Murder is pretty clear-cut. You know pretty clearly when it happens. <laughs> Not funny. <laughs> but contempt, is a, uh, contempt has a wide, wide spectrum of use. It's easy for us to look at the act of murder and say that happened. But with contempt, there's a wide spectrum. It can range from incredibly hostile acts of contempt to very subtle. I, because uh, of where we live, um, in a college town, I often have the privilege of bumping shoulders on college campuses with, with freshmen, especially around the September area of the season. Uh, as they're coming in, I love doing those kind of open house type events uh, and just meeting them as they're coming in. And it's so refreshing to me, especially at the end of my year, you know, just, just worn out and uh, just want to take a 10-hour nap, you know, to see these freshmen coming in. They're like, Santa Barbara, you know, UCSB, Westmont City College, the beach, oh my God, you know, and they come in with just this, vig- this fresh vigor. And I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> Very exciting. I love those moments. Um, and it gets me excited to be around, uh, around people like that. Uh, when I do some of those September kind of open house church fair events, like Westmont has them, UCSB, um, I, I sometimes get to field questions or to just interact with students that are just looking for a church to go to. And they're usually, you know, they can range from theological questions to, you know, how does, your, how does a church run or what do you believe about this to very funny, <laughs> funny questions. Uh, this last time, uh, this one time I remember I was at a campus and I was talking to a, I think it was a 17-year-old guy and he was, he had come up to me and he was like, oh yeah, you, you're from uh, Reality, right? That's a Reality Church. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. I have a question. He, he leans in. He says, I heard there are a lot of, he does this, hipsters at your church. <laughs> hipsters. Hipsters. And he said it with like this twinge of apprehension, like hipster. Like, I don't know. I see laughing and I see heads shaking. Like, what does he mean? <laughs> you know, every generation has had one, right? In the 50s, it was a greaser. Uh, in the 60s, I think it was a beatniks. In the 70s, it was a hippie. In the 80s, it was sheer awesome. In uh, the 90s, <laughs> it was your ner- coffee-drinking, nirvana-listening, lumberjack. Uh, 2000, I don't know what it was. 2010, hipster. So that's, that's what that is. Now, some of you are like, I still don't know what it is. That's, that's the enigma. Nobody does. <laughs> So this was not a normative question for me to field. Like I'm theological, ecclesiologist, you know, church question. Do you have hipsters? I heard there's hipsters. And so it took me off guard a little bit, but I found myself very quickly trying to navigate this question, trying to navigate my way out of this cultural discrepancy. And I began to reason to myself, well, we aren't in San Francisco. You know, it's not L.A. I've been to L.A. East London, you know, I've been there. and Seattle, Williamsburg, New York. I've been to all of those places. That's hipster. We're not. We're Santa Barbara. And I began to realize that I was, I was trying to escape this label that I was uncomfortable with and which was being imposed upon me. Now, something it turns out is very unique to hipsterism. 
There was this, uh, this one article this year, a uh, writer named Rodri was pointing out that while being a, a, a hipster is certainly a trend, you only find people denying hipsterism and pointing at others. The hipster is always someone else. An art historian, Dr. Matt Lauder, said, I don't think that they even exist. It's hard to know what a hipster is or what one is supposed to be. No one self-identifies with it, so it almost becomes a code word. Psychologist by the name of Jeff Wise for Psychology Today writes this, the essence of being a hipster is pretending that you aren't one. <laughs> so I looked at this innocent freshman rolling in, not knowing what he was getting into, and I just replied, you know, Brother, I don't think there's any hipsters anywhere. I think we're just stylish in Santa Barbara. <laughs> I said, okay. Contempt doesn't have to be hostile. It just has to exclude. It just has to push a certain group of people away. It can be snarky. It can be humorous. It can be trendy. It can even be charming but its main objective is to push other people away. Our proclivity to exclude others evolves with as much breathtaking velocity as our desire to self-protect. We can do so much to other people without actually murdering them. There is a label of this type of soft vilification for almost everyone. You Republican, you conservative, you liberal, you Bible thumper, such a tree hugger, you kook, hipster, mama's boy, the list goes on. And only as it goes on do we see its more intense levels, close-minded, idiot, bigot, and a list of others that I can't repeat here. The human heart is fully capable of destroying people in its wake without ever resorting to murder. Now the difference between the righteous anger of Jesus Christ and the contempt that he so thoroughly condemns is this. Dallas Willard put it so well in his book, uh, Divine Conspiracy, when he said, we can be angry at someone without denying their worth. But contempt makes it easier for us to hurt them or to see them further degraded. Contempt always seeks to exclude other people, even if it's just in your mind, even if it's just in your emotion. It is a kind of studied degradation of another person or a group of people. Jesus here is dealing not with righteous anger, but with contempt. So if you really want to nail righteousness got to do more than just not kill anybody. Jesus would go on to say, I tell you the truth, anyone who is angry or insults raka, a brother or sister is already standing condemned before the law of God for holding contempt in their heart and guilty before the, count, the highest council, the highest court of the land. To drive the point home even further, lest we miss his point, he says, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You fool is equivalent maybe in our day to calling someone stupid, 
of telling them to shut up in anger. Now, this isn't to say that you can't ever get angry, right? Jesus got angry. One, after all, can't control your emotions in that way, I mean. One can't control whether someone does something to anger you. You can't control whether you feel hurt or pain or that initial anger at something happened. But truth be told, I'm probably less angry at injustice than I would care to admit. I might think I'm angry at injustice or angry at sin, but more often than not, at least in my own personal life, I'm more angry because I've been offended by somebody. It's personal. It's my pride. And the moment I begin to let that anger sit in me, the moment I give it space to live, real estate in my own life, it immediately seeks to control me. The word angry that uh, Jesus uses here doesn't, it doesn't just speak to intense anger or rage, but it's also in uh, what's called a present tense form. In that, uh, in that language, a present tense had this unique character about it. It spoke of a continuous action. So when Matthew is reporting on Jesus' words, he's not just saying you had you know, that one moment of heated emotion. You know, someone did something to you and you got mad. No, he's speaking about a harboring of anger. He's speaking about a continuous action involving anger. Jesus is speaking about a carried anger. It's something that, yes, has happened. Maybe it was initially righteous anger. Maybe it was sinful anger. That's besides the point. The point is, it's still there. You're allowing it to stay. And Jesus here is making it exceedingly undesirable to harbor anger. This is a big deal to him. He goes so far as to say, uh, in this verse we just read, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Say, well, that's harsh. Yes. I think it's because Jesus thinks anger of this sort is harsh. When he refers to the hell of fire, the word that he's using, uh, the literal word he's using is Gehenna. Gehenna was an actual place in Jerusalem. It's the Greek transliteration of two Semitic words, when, which is when you put them together, is the Valley of Hinnom. That's an actual place. It pops up a couple times in the Old Testament. 2 Kings 23.10, Jeremiah 7, verse 31. It was an actual place. It was a ravine south of the city of Jerusalem, just outside the gate, where trash and rubbish were dumped and burned. It was where all the scum went. It was where things went to uh, decay and rot outside of the city gates. And because of that imagery, it, it was adopted by the Jews in that time as a symbol for the final judgment. The analogy here seems to be that Jesus is saying, if you regularly harbor this intense anger in your heart, if this is a normal way of life for you, you are not living in the rhythms of the kingdom. If anger is your normal way of life, again, careful, I'm not saying never get angry. And I don't think Jesus is saying that either. He's saying, he seems to be saying, if that is your normal mode of operation, anger, if you regularly harbor it, you're not living in the kingdom. You're living in Gehenna. Gehenna. 
And his even deeper point is not murdering is not a fulfillment of the law. That's the letter of the law. That's, that's muffin man theology. You're just getting by with as little as possible. To really fulfill the law, you'd have to purify your own heart from all contempt. You know what I love about Jesus' descriptions of the law versus our descriptions of the law? We all often function in the negative, right? Don't do this, don't do that, don't be filled with that, leave that alone, get away from this. Yes, it's those things, but Jesus comes along and he speaks about the addition or the filling the replacement of those other things with something else. In other words, Jesus seems to be saying, hey, you can't fulfill the law by not murdering. You have to be filled with something else in its place. It's not enough to not murder people. You can mur- you cannot murder people and still hate their guts. Seems to be speaking to people and saying, if you really want to fulfill the law, you gotta, you gotta be filled with love. Wouldn't he later say that anyway? And someone asked him to summarize the law and the prophets. He'd give him two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Fulfilling the law is to really, is really is to know love. The beloved apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 through 16 would say it this way. He would say, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. See that? The evidence of God's indwelling presence is love. Look at what he says later. Whoever does not love abides in death, Gana. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If regularly harboring contempt is your normal way of life, you have not tasted of the kingdom. Not saying if you regularly harbor anger and contempt, that's your normal way of life, you lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. What he seems to be suggesting is you've never tasted of it to begin with. Or there's some type of big disconnect between you and the kingdom. But whatever it is, something is wrong because the evidence of the kingdom in the life of you and I is love. Whoever does not love abides in death. You know why? When we speak of being born again or saved, we have to really like pull ourselves away from this concept that we, you know, our culture has adopted over time. That salvation is filling out, you know, back of a bulletin, praying a sinner's prayer, church attendance, all the, the variety of surfacey things that we use to describe salvation. Salvation is transformation from the inside out. And a small part of that very broad subject is this. Salvation satisfies two things about you, relationally speaking. It satisfies your vertical hunger for relationship by bringing you to God, right? When you're saved, you're saved into the life of of God. It also satisfies or begins to satisfy your horizontal need for relationships. You are not just saved as a kind of a, 
a floating autonomous Christian in the sphere of life. You're saved into the community of God. You're saved into the universal family of God, of which the local church is a visible expression. You're saved into a group of people. Again, Dallas Willard would write, this is so helpful, I think. He says, to belong is a vital need based in the spiritual nature of the human being. So contempt spits on this pathetically deep need. And like anger, contempt does not have to be acted out in a special way to be evil, like murder. It is inherently poisonous. Just by being what it is, it is withering to the human soul. Why does Jesus care so much about anger? Because it fights everything that his kingdom came here for. It's not just a runaway emotion. The deep-seated contempt that finds its way and lodges its way into our heart fights against everything that the kingdom of God is about. Contempt dishonors our God, it excludes God's people, and it poisons self. No wonder Paul would say in Ephesians 4.31, put away all anger. Even righteous anger shouldn't hang on to it for too long because of the ingenuity of the human heart. How many of you have been enraged, called someone stupid, maybe just under your breath, told someone to shut up, any of those things in the last year? Don't raise your hand. All right? you know, I'm <laughs> rhetorical question. <laughs> How many of you have been angry at not other people but at God? Perhaps some of you are just came in here today, you're not angry at other people, you're angry at yourself. Truth be told you, it's deep form of self-hatred. You just hate what your life has been, where you've come, angry. Do you feel poisoned? Do you feel like you've been robbed of the experience of knowing God all this time? Ever get frustrated showing up to church, seeing other people enjoy the presence of God and feel like you're missing out on something? Uh, after presenting Jesus' very own words, I want to ask you, do you think that there's any connection between the two? Do you think that, that latent anger within you from whatever it is, maybe it's from your past, maybe it's from something this last week, do you think that has anything to do with this rut you've hit in your spiritual walk? If you did, you're not alone. Y'all heard my story a few weeks ago. I got angry, I got hurt. People let me down, I was disappointed. Stabbed in the back. And over the years, I got angry. And instead of dealing with it, I put it in a compartment somewhere in my life and there it sat and fermented. And it ate away at me. And the insatiable appetite that anger has was not satisfied with eating away at me. It creeped its way into every relationship I had. 
and everything I did. Don't you think Jesus knows what he's talking about when he says, put it away? And yet, how funny to think that all those years I would wake up thinking, I have not murdered anyone today. And so we think, I am righteous, for I have met the minimum requirement of the law. I am the muffin man. <laughs> and Jesus, who came once for you, and he was coming back to get you. For the glory of his Father, for his passion for his mission, and for a deep love for your soul is not satisfied to let you sit in that place. Comes in like a flood and brings out the full potency of God's law. Righteousness is not a matter of checking off one other action item. Don't murder, don't tie knots, don't do this. Righteousness is living out Christ's life in you. It's not crossing off a list of things. You'd never be able to stop crossing off that list. There's endless lists. When do you get done? It's not just crossing off action items. It's living out Christ's life in you. Romans chapter eight, verse two through four. I love this passage. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Christ comes the first time, dies, is raised again to fulfill in us what we so lack. But he doesn't stop there. He then enables us to walk according to this new life that we have been given. He enables us to align ourselves with righteousness. And so for a person who has been born again, the requirement is not just don't murder. The requirement is be a force for transformation in environments where e anger is easily cultivated. You used to be enslaved to anger. Now you are an instrument of transformation when other people are getting angry. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the hill. I'm sending you into the dark zone to spread the life of Christ. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it interesting that what Jesus does is not whet our appetite for action lists by saying, you know, you heard it said before that you shall not murder, but what I say to you is you shall not get angry. Ha, 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 ha. He doesn't give us another action point. He doesn't give us another prohibition. He says, you heard it said this, but I have something greater planned for you. And so Jesus, far more than giving us an action point of prohibitions, calls forth what is deep set in his people. As he conforms us to his life and mission, he calls us to live. 
according to the power that is in us already. A couple writers, uh, Glenn Stason and David uh, Gushy, writing on this, commented that what Jesus is doing here and what he's gonna be doing for the rest of this chapter, instead of giving prohibitions, they call it transforming initiatives. Saying, notice that Jesus doesn't say, hey, instead of being, uh, instead of murdering, uh, not murdering, don't be angry. Instead of not committing adultery, uh, don't lie. You know, he doesn't exchange one prohibition for another. He gives what they call these transforming initiatives. And the rest of this chapter, it's gonna be really quick, I'm just gonna skim over it, are examples of that. Instead of saying, hey, instead of not murdering, I want you to not be angry. Never says that, we get angry. Anger is a problem. Rather, he says, you instead, listen, listen, look at this, I'll just read it. (laughs) So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother, I'll just stop there. I love how he uses the term brother. Already, transforming initiative. This is not your enemy. This is, a, this is a family member. He uses that word twice. Your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So instead of don't murder, he's giving you something to walk in. He's saying be reconciled to your brothers. I love how he says, hey, if you're in the middle of worshiping and someone has something against you, you should make it right. That might be some of you today. I think if Jesus were here right now in the flesh, he would say, you know, instead of getting on the carpets and worshiping and singing, you need to go out into the foyer right now and call that person on the phone. And then come in and sing about those things that you so deeply believe. In the second example, he says, In in the first one, he's speaking about a brother that has something against you. Then he transitions to speak about an an apparent enemy. He says, uh, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Jesus isn't giving legal advice here. He's He's just speaking about a couple situations to get his point across. He's saying, be quick to live the kingdom in your relationships. Don't let it come to that place. Someone has something against you, get on it now. Because it will spiral out of your control, but my life is in your life, and I am in you, and you are in me. Live this way. Be reconciled to your brother. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Do what you gotta do to spread the life of the kingdom. Don't give the devil an inch. And so Jesus calls forth from his disciples in environments that often yield to things like anger and contempt and bitterness and hostility and unforgiveness, a different way to live. Jesus is the one who makes that possible and he calls us to step out in that way. And you say, well, that is incredibly difficult. You're right. (laughs) Sermon on the Mount is crazy. But Jesus completely expects us to live this way. And the thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that if you, uh, you are, are, are not alone in obeying Christ's words, he is, if you've put your faith and trust in him, he is in you and you are in him and the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God, Paul told 
the Galatian church. I want to end this sermon with a giant chunk of text in Colossians. I want this to launch you into a life of hope in Christ. What you have left behind in your old life to what you have been called to live right now. And I just can't say it any better than what Paul says, so I'm just gonna read it. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This is Colossians chapter three, verse one through 17. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you too used to walk when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, those compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. Put on patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks God the Father, through him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. As we posture ourselves to receive from the Lord, probably wondering about this. You may have gotten one of these at the door. If you didn't, uh, there will be a stack of them at the front. But I hope you now understand a little bit more about this word. Raka. It's a symbol of contempt and anger. I wanted these cards, and it might just be a personal thing, but I am such a visual, like, I have to do things with my hands. It makes it very vivid for me. So if this doesn't work for you, then that's fine. Don't feel pressured to do it. This is only if it helps. But for some of you, you might, you, you might be struggling with anger. Maybe it's been 30 years Maybe it's just been a couple weeks, but what Jesus says in this text, this is real. If this is you, I just want to invite you to take a preliminary step forward 
and to lay down that which has enslaved you in this building to stay for the rest of your life. Some of you like to worship on the carpets in a posture of worship before the Lord. Leave it here on the carpets as you go out from this theater. Some of you, if you're a believer, you partake of the bread and of the cup. Take of the bread and the cup and remind yourself of what Christ has done for you and leave this here. Leave it on the carpets, leave it on the floor, leave it on the stage, leave stacks of them here as a sign of our anger being stripped away. Just don't leave it in the hallways because people will trip over your anger. <laughs> now listen, dropping this card is not magical. It's not gonna free you. Only the love of God in Christ can free you from the poisonous grip of anger, and it's a process. It might, take, it might take a long time of God working on you. What this is, is the beginning of that process. It's us saying, it's us making a conscious decision to surrender our anger to God, if it's there. If it's not, you're fine, go eat a hot dog, great. But for those of you, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. And you, in that beginning step of faith, can say, God, this is not who you made me to be. I need your grace and your power to help me lay this down, and I want to walk in step with your Holy Spirit. I surrender this to you, and I need your power to make me more like Christ. Do that today. Let's just cover the front area of this theater in the things that used to entangle us. For others, you might need to bring it home with you. You could do that too. Maybe this is just an honest realization that you're harboring anger. You don't even know why you're angry. But you need to open up those dark places to God. Go home. Set this before the Lord. and Say, God, what is going on with me? You were right about my anger. I didn't trust you, and it took a hold of me, and it's burning me. And this is not the person that I want to be, and Lord, only you can free it. So Lord, examine me. Deal with these deep places. Heal me. But whatever you do, if this is something that's real in your life, please do not tuck it back in your pocket never to be dealt with again. Whether it's here, whether it's in the trash, whether it's taking it home, whether it's something entirely different, let God deal with those deep areas. You wanna know what the good life of the kingdom is? So you don't have to be enslaved by anger any longer. The Savior has come. He's coming again for a pure and spotless bride. Let's worship. Heavenly Father, do all of these things in accordance with your will. In Jesus' name.